Hello and welcome to DigFin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoy the program, give us a like and let YouTube's algorithm know. Buy now, pay later is one of the hottest topics in fintech around the world. But as Ben Quinlan of Quinlan Associates is going to tell us, all is not well in the buy now, pay later space. The biggest problem is these companies don't make money. And according to Ben, that's because the model is inherently flawed. Can it be fixed? Ben Quinlan, welcome to DigFin Vox. Thanks, James. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, the pleasure's mine. Uh, great to have you on, and we're going to talk about buy now, pay later, and all the exciting stuff that's happening in that space. Uh, buy now, pay later has been a huge trend for the past uh, several years, but I'd say especially the past two years, it's really taken the world by storm. Or you know, and it really is the world. It's it's, it's Europe, it's it's Asia, it's Australia, it's all kinds of places. Uh, but you've just put out a report and you're saying that the picture is not that rosy, that in fact, these companies are all losing a ton of money. So mm -hmm. uh, what's the, are we in a growth phase? Is this something that's durable um, or are we gonna look at some kind of flame out? So, you know, you're right. The, the story has really hit media headlines and everyone is talking about buy now, pay later. And there is no question that top line growth customer acquisition, merchant acquisition, the GMV being processed by these firms. These are all pretty impressive numbers. Um, and there seems to be a narrative right now around consolidation. We'll solve for profitability around consolidation. The challenge that we see, because we've done a lot of projects in this space, we've also done our homework in this space, is really the unit economics of the business as it stands today is not very favorable. And given the headwinds that are gonna come in the industry, particularly around rising interest rates and the likely regulatory overlay that is probably gonna come from the West into the East, uh, we just see the, the fundamental P&L trajectory being quite off at the moment. So it doesn't really work from a profitability perspective. We can't see that path to commercial sustainability as it stands today. Is this gonna be kind of like an Uber situation where you end up with uh, VC-backed businesses that just end up subsidizing business that's imaginary? What we did is we took the various kind of stakeholder groups. So with the customer side of things, the NPLs, not very sustainable, you know, higher than what you're seeing in the credit card world, other consumer lending products, just because there's an adverse selection problem, because they tend to go down the credit curve. Uh, the MDRs, which is where they make most of their money uh, in terms of charging merchants, they've compressed over the past few years. They're still a lot higher uh, than what you're seeing with other uh, merchant fees, for example, paying on credit cards. And that will continue to compress. And you imagine the funding costs. So many of these newer BMPO firms still have a lot of risk or credit risk on their books, or they're paying a lot of money for financing from external partners to fund this. And as a result of it, it's the unit economics of all these things coming together and not looking great. It can be turned around, but as it stands today, unless there are major changes made, um, you will see a, a similar situation to that. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, we've seen the largest firms offshore in the West still operating at net losses today. We've seen Afterpay, which is the largest one, 
in Asia Pacific, you know, based out of Australia, also facing the same problem. So it's not like scale is solving for profit. There's something wrong with the model that has to be fixed. Let's talk about the model. Let's start and, and maybe go back a little bit. Why buy now, pay later is a trend. What makes it so sexy? Um, it's, it's, it's better financing terms for the consumer. Uh, it's uh, potentially attractive to merchants because it drives more revenue at the point of sale. But why don't we just explain a little bit about how buy now, pay later works, why it's different from a credit card. So typically, if you're looking at a, a consumer pr uh, credit product, uh, the way that they're monetized is usually the consumer is charged an interest rate and or fees. Um, so if I you know, pay something on credit card, I've got a window of, it depends on the market, uh, a month up to maybe 59 days to pay that off. If not, then it rolls over. And guess what? I get charged on the interest on any uh, outstanding amounts plus additional fees and charges for, for processing that. So that can hit uh, a lot of consumers. The NPL, the, the model is we don't charge the consumers any interest. Uh, what they do is they buy now and they usually pay in three installments. That's the typical model, a third up front and then a third in month two, a third in month three. Um, if they're able to meet those obligations on time, then of course, they don't need to pay anything additional. It's the merchant who pays the merchant discount rate, the MDR. That's where the source of money comes from. So for a consumer, it's a lot more rapid. They don't have to face the risk of paying interest rates if they're able to meet those three payment tranche obligations. Um, but obviously, if you fall behind, then you're going to start to get slapped with you know, penalties and other things, which ultimately don't bode well for that consumer. So much more rapid ability to deploy credit, much more quick credit decisioning processes. Um, you know, it's not like you apply for a credit card and see if you can get approved, then you can start spending. It's at every point of purchase, you start to say, well, we can lend this money to you nice and quick, provided you can pay it in this amount of time, right? What's, you know, what do you think has been the biggest growth driver? I think a couple of things. So if you look at, uh, let's say, emerging markets, the fact is the access to traditional uh, loans and credit products is really quite underwhelming, right? Still huge amounts of the population unbanked, very few people having access to credit cards, particularly in markets like Indonesia, where you know, 2% of the population has a credit card. So that, that's that angle. And then, you know, from more developed market angles, it's really a lot of the, the discounts, um, the other things that tie in with these products. So most of the people using the NPL will have discounts and, you know, offers with particular merchants where if they buy this particular good, then guess what? They get $100 off, $50 off, whatever it might be. And those discounts are really aggressive. So from a consumer perspective, yep, I love it. It's great. I'll pay for it. The problem is that discount has to be paid for by someone. And for the large part, particularly for the firms operating in Asia Pacific, it's being fully funded, if not just partially, at least partially funded by the BNPL firms on their marketing drive to get the merchants on board. So it's an expensive exercise. If a merchant's gonna pay 2% with a credit card, and then they're gonna pay 5% MDR, is a, is a transaction processing fee with the BNPL, there better be a lot of value embedded within that 5% payment. And the idea is, okay, we can lift your order values, um, we can start to do all these things, but a lot of this is being funded by the BNPLs, which is really hitting their bottom line. There's two things there then. One is that the funding seems a little out of whack. I mean, using 
essentially equity, right? You're talking about their own balance sheet, which is probably being financed by a, a VC or, or, or somebody, uh, which seems like a crazy way to, to, to finance a, a business like that um, using your own balance sheet. But at the same time, the merchants who want to get that value for that higher uh, fee that they're paying, uh, you know, that would then imply that they're getting extra sales, they're getting customer loyalty, they're able to bind those customers in some way because of the nature of the payment rather than uh, doing something extraneous to it. And is that happening? Are merchants getting that kind of value? Uh, so there's the balance sheet side and then there's the, the value side for the merchants. What's, what's happening? So let's tackle on the balance sheet side. I think it's, it's a logical thing when most of these firms start and they raise VC funding and so on to start to deploy this to their actual credit book. It's very, very unsustainable, cannot do that. Most BNPL firms understand it because the cost of that funding is so exorbitant. So they, what they typically do very early on is try and find uh, debt facility partners or funding partners to provide those uh, credit facilities to the end uh, customers. And as a result of that, um, it does reduce the funding costs a bit, but it depends on what market you're in. You know, if you, if you get a debt facility provided by, let's say an investor in a market like Indonesia or Malaysia, the expectations around their interest returns are extremely high. So it's not cheap by any means, which is why some of these BNPL firms have thought, well, do I even set up a virtual bank? And you can see many of them were actually part of the applicant list for the new VVs here in Asia Pacific, um, being able to get cheap consumer deposits as a source of funding and then build the credit business from there. So who wears that risk if, if they do get some sort of uh, lender behind them or investor behind them, uh, they're still at the end of the day lending money to consumers, it's consumer lending, so uh, unsecured. So uh, who, who wears the risk if, if that consumer defaults? The BNPL firm. At the end of the day, it's the buy now, pay later, unless and well, it typically evolves as the BNPL firm will get a funding facility in its early days, provide a guaranteed return to the investor, and then they will wear the credit risk of ultimately the business that they run. Inevitably, if that you know goes pear-shaped, then the debt investor can't get their money back. So, but the idea is the credit risk as a whole is borne by the BNPL. As they get more mature, then there may be opportunities for the actual financier to wear that credit risk themselves. But you have to prove the risk engine works. Uh, right now, a lot of these risk engines don't necessarily align with the risk appetite, the credit risk appetite that the investor is providing the loan. So it's like, we'll give you the money, you give us a guaranteed interest, you manage your credit risk, but you're on the hook to pay us what we expect. Um, I imagine that the, uh, ben, I'd, I'd imagine that that credit risk would decline over time with user data coming in, right? They can, they can improve the credit algorithms, they can attract a better class of, of borrower. Uh, but for that to happen, they need that expansion of usage, which goes then to ties into the merchant side. Are the merchants able to uh, get and keep customers through buy now, pay later in a way that they might not do with their other methods? So good questions. Technically, as the business expands, as more data is processed, then the risk engine becomes more sophisticated and that credit risk starts to decline over time. That's the idea. The reality is doesn't necessarily always 
uh, equal the case. The bottom line is, if you look at the customer segment that many of these BNPL firms are focusing on, it's the lower end of the customer curve, people that don't have the credit available. And naturally, that exposes them to riskier customer segments. Um, if you look at the average, what I would call delinquency rates with BNPL firms operating in developed markets within Asia Pacific, probably hovering at about one and a half percent. If you compare that to credit card delinquencies, that's more like 0.7 to maybe 1.1, 1.2%. So it's definitely a notch above. If you go to emerging markets, the delinquency rates can get really, really high. We've seen them spike into low double digits. So that's nothing to ignore. It's, it's really eats away their entire business model once credit risk uh, goes runs afoul. And your point on the, the merchant side is you're right. As, as you want to get uh, merchants on board, you're providing them with discounts and you're hoping for more repeat usage. But unless those discounts are really hooked in there, we find a lot of people using BNPL and they go do it, use it as a one-off because there are great deals. And unless there are other deals there, well, why use the BNPL, right? It fundamentally doesn't change the nature of that consumption decision. Um, a lot of that consumption decision is driven by the actual economics on each purchase, which comes into that discount uh, equation. That's why you're seeing, I would say, the repeat GMV or the repeat user base among the really established players is probably about 90%. So there's 10% that don't really come back and use it again. But as you move to emerging markets, that's more like 25% repeat usage, right? So a lot of people go on, get one deal, they're off. That's the challenge, keeping hooking people back to use BNPL. It costs a lot of money. So Ben, one thing that your report did was break down the real problems of profitability or lack thereof, looking at the fact that a loss at the, the level of the GMV, the gross merchandise value, the, the value that's being of the goods being sold, uh, does not correlate to the loss that the buy now, pay later company is taking. It's actually a lot worse. Can you explain how that works? Right. So a lot of people might get uh, confused around the mechanics of this. So let's say I process $100 of GMV. So $100 of transaction value goes through a BNPL tool. Um, the average credit loss, about 1.5% for developed market players in Asia Pacific. So most people would think, okay, 100 minus 1.5, so 98.5. That's not the case. The reality is on that $100, the revenue generated is the MDR. So if we take, let's say, the average MDR of $5, that $1.5 needs to be applied to the $5 revenue. That's what the BNPL firm's economics are. And 1.5 of 5 is 30% of the actual revenue lost that they receive. So what that means is the effective GMV is 100 minus that 30%. That's the value loss on the GMV being processed. So it's really important to make that distinction. Um, so it's like what we call this effective GMV on industry averages of more like $70 per $100 processed. And that's, that's a, a point to take note of around the economics because it's, it's the commercialization and business model of these BNPLs that need to be taken into account. Now, remember that $5 revenue, that's inevitably going to uh, decline as more pressure comes in the industry. And you can't just raise it up like you would on a NIM play if interest rates were to rise, which they're likely to do. So where does that go? And I guess that's because partly because BNPL has been a success and there's a lot of competition. 
Yes, huge amounts of competition. It's if you look at uh, the market a few years ago, there were a number of notable players. There's been this massive rush all over the world of BNPL firms coming into the market and then trying to either do the, the mass market like for like or compete on certain consumer segments, uh, compete with certain merchant segments. Um, the industry has really exploded. That's compressed the NBRs. That's meant competition for merchant acquisition, spend, spend, spend. Um, it's a natural part of startup life when you're going through competition and you will see this consolidation phase. But consolidation still, in our view, won't solve for profit, right? That's not the issue here. What has to happen to change this equation if you're saying that the model, as has been introduced, is systematically unsustainable? Mm -hmm. Well, in our report, we lay out three broad directions. We call them optimization, integration, and expansion. And expansion might sound weird, but I'll explain them in detail. So the optimization point is there's a lot of inefficiency around user targeting acquisition, um, the evaluation perspective, and then how to basically optimize those funding sources. So if you're looking at merchant positioning, what you're seeing is with uh, BNPL firms, as they start to mature, their merchant profiles that they go after start to become more mature as well. So in Afterpay's example, when it back in 2016, a lot of the merchants it was working with were discount retailers. Um, you know, as it entered 2018, we're seeing more mid-market retail, the likes of Target, Vans, Diesel. And then in 2020, its merchant acquisition approach was really like the Jimmy Choo's of this world, the Michael Kors, the Giorgio Armani's, right? So a, a different profile. And as you move up that curve and you start to focus on higher-end merchants, you're hopefully also focusing on higher-end consumers, which then lowers that credit risk. So probably less volume, but high quality of transactions. Marketing approach also needs to be thought through. It's very easy to take VC money and just throw it at digital marketing, but that costs a fortune. There are other methods to think through in terms of the use of KOLs, influencers, which we've seen some different firms use. And then I guess conversion, you know, you can deploy all these massive brand ambassador teams in the merchant stores to go and drive the uptake and use and sign up rates. That costs a fortune. Uh, it's about enabling the merchants for them to understand how to do it to the customers and also incentivizing them. So moving from a direct to an indirect model. Um, user evaluation, also very important, making sure that you're bringing in the right amount of and the right quality of alternative data out there. Um, that's absolutely critical because there are so many different dimensions of data from which to assess the credit worthiness of these end consumers or borrowers. Um, and then broadly, like, can they move to this super app model and integrate with different you know, services and look for fundamentally more sustainable funding sources? And that's either you, you do it direct and you get cheap funding from someone else or you outsource that through a partner or you move to that kind of virtual bank, but that's a completely different operating model altogether. What, what do you make of, there's been some very high profile acquisitions in the buy now, pay later space in Asia PAC, at least in the developed markets. Uh, PayPal acquired Payday in Japan, uh, Block, formerly known as uh, Square, acquired Afterpay. Uh, yeah. What do you see with these deals? Are, are, and might we see something like this also in the emerging space? Yeah, I think you will. Um, so there's kind of two consolidation uh, stories going on, right? You have you have the ones where BNPL acquires BNPL to drive critical mass. 
that's what I would call the horizontal integration. But what we're really seeing, it's interesting, is the vertical integration story. So if you break down a customer journey, it really starts with the online shopping experience at an e-commerce platform. Once they've made that decision, they want to pay, it goes through a, you know, a, a payment provider and then borrower, and then that's the BNPL. Then there's the logistics associated with it. Then there's the debt collection. There is a journey, there is a process here. And what you're seeing is now payment firms uh, latching on this BNPL option to say, okay, if you want to pay, but you can't pay throughout, throughout channel, then guess what? We have a BNPL facility where we can lend you this money too. And I think what you're seeing as well is a lot of these BNPL firms are looking up and down that curve. Do we move all the way down the collections or do we even think about creating our own e-commerce site? And I think from all of this, Jane, our biggest belief is the person that owns the customer, the business that owns the customer is going to be the one that does the best. And that's why the e-commerce platforms are the most profitable and all the payments, lending, everything that falls below them are enablers of that. And a lot of those businesses don't make money, right? So that's the challenge. How do you get as close as possible to that customer? Do you see banks also getting into trying to do their own version of this? I definitely think there is a lot of room for banks, NDFIs, and payment companies. So if you go back to the, what the core problems are, customer acquisition costs, banks have massive customer bases. Merchant acquisition costs, huge merchant bases from their SME and commercial banking propositions. Uh, funding costs, low cost of deposits. And what you're seeing in certain markets is that the rate of growth of credit card usage has slowed down. Uh, some it's actually gone the other way. So in Australia, um, credit card usage has actually declined. Now, credit card spending is up, but credit card usage is down. So you're seeing a shift in the way that people are choosing to use different consumer credit products. Um, and banks need to be very cognizant of this, fundamentally think about, well, what is the preference or evolving, you know, uh, interests of the, the next younger generation, the millennials, Gen Zs, and so on, around the way they like to spend and BNPL is a very valid option. And you've seen a couple of banks make a foray into this space, either directly or through investments in BNPL firms as an alternative channel to drive uh, that part of their consumer lending business. But I think what we're seeing is that buy now, pay later is it's here to stay. It's got a lot of uh, positive attributes. A lot of people like it. It may not necessarily be monoline, buy now, pay later fintechs that actually end up winning that business because they may not be sustainable. Uh, so the last thing then is regulation. Mm -hmm. We've seen in the UK um, uh, a crackdown on what they said were uh, unsavory practices or creating undue risks for, for borrowers. Uh, I know in Australia, ASIC has also looked at this, uh, concerns about some of these buy now, pay later, if there's late fees or other charges that they end up creating a, a, a cycle of indebtedness uh, for consumers that aren't prepared to, to pay. Um, so what do you see in APAC in terms of potential regulation on this space? Will it help the space and support the best practices or will it just be uh, difficult for everybody? I think the regulation, it's understandable where it's coming from. Um, you know, buy now, pay later. Jane, I, I, we're roughly from the same generation. You know, it, it's like the whole... The whole logic when we grew up is, you know, mom and dad told me if I wanted something, I had to save up for it. Now it's like, you don't need that. You don't need all of these credit checks. Just get it now, get it now, worry about it later. 
And that's pushing people into much more of a conspicuous consumption cycle, which they maybe don't think about and cannot support. The level of indebtedness is really not a great thing. Um, it's good to empower people to buy necessities and things they ultimately need. It creates that sense of financial freedom, right? Um, but how people are using it and how consumers think about it, it's, it's really hard to ensure, I would say, long-term consumer protection if people are just going all out on these BNPL services. And the consumer protection emphasis in markets like the United Kingdom are coming from the right place, right? Because people are finding themselves now falling behind in payments. And then all the late fees and charges and other things are making their situations even worse. Um, in APAC, the market that I would say is more on the front foot with this, just because it gen just is more mature with respect to BNPL is Australia. Um, and that's, you know, really looking at the more stringent supervision of the BNPL providers in the industry um, around reform on, you know, current payment regulation. Um, I do think it will largely depend on the trade-off between what I would call financial empowerment and inclusion, and then ultimately the damage that can be caused, especially, like, it sounds weird, but if you look at things like debt collection activities, in emerging Asia, they might not be as savory. So there's a lot of things that can come up as a result of this, this industry if it's not managed in the right way where regulators will respond. And at the end of the day, consumer protection lies at the heart of what they wanna do and they have to find that balance. Um, so we'll see, it's just slightly different objectives in markets like the West where financial inclusion is not necessarily the core objective. Whereas you do need to take that into account in the East, particularly in ASEAN. Yeah. And maybe this is a way that regulators can use things like creating virtual bank licenses uh, or partnerships to help, you know, create standards and, and, and drive and, and founders can think about these things as ways to create a durable business. That is 100% correct. And I think there is a bit of a nudge saying, you know, if you're going to operate a credit business as such, and it feels and looks like our bank as such, you might want to think about setting up your own virtual bank. And some, some of these players are thinking about setting up their own virtual bank or even looking at acquiring smaller banks within certain markets in the region as a means to get fully licensed and then to roll out a more expansive set of products and services in the credit space and then everything else that comes with operating a bank. Ben Quinlan, it's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, I'm sure that there'll be a, a follow-up we'll need to do at some point. Uh, it's an exciting and dynamic space, but obviously one that does have some hurdles. Most importantly, the lack of profitability, which is going to be a problem. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, and good luck, uh, Quinlan and Associates. Thanks very much, Jen. It was a pleasure.